Mana 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 this is social discasting welcome to social discasting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i am brandon aka brandon hope you're well my guest is a writer podcaster and hot springs arkansas native whose fantastic narrative nonfiction book the vapors a southern family the new york mob and the rise and fall of hot springs america's forgotten capital of vice was released in july of last year and who is a regular contributor to the ringer as well as hosting the great spotify original podcast gamblers please welcome david hill welcome hey brandon hey. thanks for having me absolutely thank you for coming on i really appreciate your time so the uh <laughs> i always don't know how to begin this so i guess i just always begin the same way but the uh easy to ask the world to answer a question how are you <laughs> i don't know man i'm <laughs> i'm a mess i'm all over the place i've yeah. uh i'm doing okay though relatively i'm doing well that's good i feel like um as much as i, I maybe like shot maybe before this you know all of this was like a great day let's let, let's be great i'm now i'm just i've gone between the two polarities of awful and great now, and it's just, I just want to be okay. That feels mm-hmm. like a worthy goal at this point. Yeah, totally. And I, But, you know, it's weird because maybe we also, we're, we're more focused on this now than we ever have been. You know, maybe this being inside for a year has turned us all very inward, you know? I mean, I find a lot of the things that bother me now are things that probably could have bothered me before but didn't you know maybe because i was too distracted or i was too busy or i don't know you know but um but it's not you know not uh, i mean there are some new existential dreads you know some existential issues that have drifted into my (laughs) my psyche because of the because of being faced with the global pandemic but other than that i think that some of what we're all dealing with is just being alone with ourselves and how terrifying that is (laughs) Oh man, it really is. You know, I was in the the earlier stages, I suppose, of it all. I was thinking, oh boy, this is going to be tough. And just having to reckon with all of these things that I've been putting off or other people have been putting off and trying to distract yourself with. And so once you, all those options are taken away, when those those distractions are taken away, you realize, oh yeah, got to do the work and got to have difficult conversations with yourself. Necessary, but difficult. And that's it's easier said than done, but I, I I do feel like is and maybe this is like blindly optimistic or naive, but I I think man if we can withstand this I feel like we can withstand anything like war. God, I know that's <laughs> where my brain went when I said that too about like <laughs> man as I was saying that I was thinking boy there are so many things that are impossible to deal with far more than a pandemic even war is is definitely number one with a bullet I would say uh, yeah. pun unintended but yeah that's the great that's the great privilege of being an American is that you know. We've not had to deal with that. You know, we've not had to deal with war on our own turf here, you know? Yeah. We certainly like, you know, get involved in a lot of wars. But uh, but for those of us who aren't in the military, we've been able to live for many generations without ever having to worry about, you know, stuff blowing up, people dropping bombs on us or invading us. That is a wild thought. I guess I never really thought about that, of how, yeah, we really take it to everyone else, but nobody's taken it to us, at least not since Pearl Harbor or... Not yeah, that barely nice that barely counts. Pearl Harbor barely counts, right? I mean, it was like you know, um, it was a small skirmish out in the middle of the ocean. It you know, it was there weren't any civilians living on that. You know, <laughs> at least yeah. I don't think so. You know, it's just a dis- and yet it's this major hallmark in our you know American consciousness at this time that we were attacked when like you know World War II just like uh, completely like leveled Europe and Russia. You know, and we we were a part of that war, but. Uh, but here at home, people 
you know, never had to live in that kind of fear. So, yeah, I think it is a big part of being American is getting to live your life. Not ever. That's one, that's one less thing that we have to worry about in the United States. Yeah. 9-11 notwithstanding, but you know, yeah. even as the years grow, go by, you know, in 9-11, as it gets farther and farther in the past, it's easier to look at it now with, you know, clearer eyes and contextualize even 9-11, you know, I mean, with, you know, terror attacks that happen all over the world too, that other, it's yet another thing that other people around the world have had to deal with for so long. And then it finally came to the United States in that way. And we weren't ready, man. <laughs> no. We weren't ready. No, not at all. I mean, it's wild to think that, you know, in the, the historical scheme of things, we are, we're, I mean, we're like teenagers. <laughs> we're such a young country, you know. And for something like that to happen is just like, obviously, we were not ready for that in many ways. We're prepared for it. But boy, oh boy, I mean, this the complete lack of expectations that anything like that could happen to us. Yeah, America's soft, I think. That's pretty much the, you know, I mean, it's America's grown very soft. Especially in this, you know, maybe in the last, uh, since World War II, maybe, I guess. It's gotten yeah. softer. I don't know. But America, maybe America was always soft. I don't know. But It feels like there's a complacency at the very least. I mean, there's a lot of things. But that is one word that comes to mind when I think of that. And uh, and honestly, like, uh, frank entitlement and arrogance, I think, is a fair, are fair things to call America. I mean, I lived, in the, I lived in New York during 9-11. And, you know, we really, I mean, it was like... I mean, forget about New York. The whole country shut down after 9-11, right? I mean, we just went, oh, yeah. came to a complete standstill. You know, everything closed. People were, like, stunned. I mean, it really rang our bell, man. And, like, in New York, you know, forget about it. I mean, New York City was just wild for, I don't know. It feels like, looking back on it, it feels like it was months. Months that, like, we, you know, just were we could not get back. But then I think about, like, places like, you know, Ireland, you know, or London, you know, during the troubles or whatever, where like a bus would blow up and then the next day there'd be another bus, you know, the market would blow up and the next day the market was open again. Like they'd clear out the the debris and they'd get things back open and they just kept going, you know, it's not to say that the bombing didn't have any, you know, effect on people, but they, they didn't like, I don't know, they didn't just grind everything to a halt the way that the 9-11 kind of grinded America to a halt for a long time. It took us forever to really like, you know, walk it off and uh, figure out how to like continue. And, you know, and we had to have a war, you know, that's the other thing. In order to get back to life, we also, we also had to have a war and we had to like go blow somebody up at two. Like that was the other part of it is that we had to have some vengeful act to like, so so, yeah, I think that was a, it was a weird, it was a weird, very (laughs) weird moment, but it definitely laid bare a lot of what I think about, you know, the reality of America versus kind of how a lot of people like to think about America. Yeah, I mean, to your point, too, about the, like the, the comparison to the Troubles, I guess with 9-11, there was a defined line of demarcation of the act of it. It was over in like an hour, I mean, 30 minutes or, or however the timeline. It was like a day, two days, whatever, as opposed to the Troubles of like, it was such a defined, relatively long-term thing that it was just like, oh, this is life now, kind of like in a weird way how the pandemic is, of like, regardless of how catastrophic or truly awful the situation is, humans are very malleable. It was a very artful seg, too, to get back onto the uh, topic of uh, the pandemic there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank yeah, you. It's just second nature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's interesting how we've, uh, you know, America is like that sort of softness that I was talking about before is definitely at play here too with the the pandemic, you know, and how 
just utterly unwilling so many Americans are to make very simple sacrifices in order to get through this thing and make it yeah. easier for everybody, you know, and this, and that, that really speaks to like a, you know, a, kind of a, a really kind of like, uh, you know, a selfishness that, that comes from that kind of individuality that a lot of people feel is like their, you know, whatever their birthright as Americans. And so that has definitely made the pandemic so much harder, you know, even than it needed to be is that, constant like fucking dealing with you know the squabbling and the drama that certain absolute you know drama queens have to like create around being asked to make minor sacrifices Uh, that's that's been a real you know that's been a real drag too absolutely i think about that a lot about like man it didn't have to be this way and asking so little of people to prevent that you know like so little it's unfathomable to me that I mean, not that we knew it, obviously, from the outset. I mean, a lot of people thought, oh, six weeks and it's done. There we go. But, you know, here we are a year and two, three months, you know, 14, 15 months. And I guess we're getting there, but I, I still, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Are you, it feels weird to ask because I don't, to pry into people's anything related to medical stuff, but are you vaccinated? Oh, yeah, I'm vaccinated. I've been okay. vaccinated for a few months now. I, I have uh I have uh, moderate asthma, so in New York, they let us, you know, we were in one of the earlier groups of people that were allowed to get vaccinated, so I've been vaccinated for a bit, for a few months now. I know that you went to a restaurant recently, but have you been (laughs) somewhat venturing out in the wake of that? No, really, it's, we went to a restaurant on Sunday night, it was a friend's birthday, and he was, uh going out to a restaurant with his kids and he invited us to come along to celebrate. And we talked about it and we were like, all right, let's do it. And so we went and, uh, it was so weird. It was such a like, and look, it was like, just because we haven't done it in so long, doing it was like exciting, but like sensory overload in a way. And like, I don't know, like it, it was fun and it made me excited about the prospect of doing it more often and getting back to normal. But it also made me, it really was, it made me realize how, weird and difficult that it will be to get back to normal because everything that used to be normal is going to feel so strange and feel so overwhelming in that same way. And so I kind of had to brace myself. I feel like I need to really, we all should ease back into normal life. I mean, you know, maybe not everybody will experience it the same way, but that's how we were, my wife and I were feeling. I imagine like I'm fully vaccinated as of about a month ago, three weeks, a month ago. And I've mentioned it on here several times, but I I keep thinking about like, um, not that it's defined in any specific way, but like, how how do I navigate this? What do I do? Because I'm, I'm very deeply hesitant of doing it, uh, of going back out. I'm certainly not going to be, you know, fully going back out like I was before any of this. But I'm like, where's the line for me? And I still don't know yet. I just know, you know, you got to get back to it eventually. But it just feels, it feels a little early, I guess, for me to to return back. But I, I don't know, I don't know how to navigate that. I really don't. No, I guess none of us do. Honestly, it's it's something that's been on my mind too. I mean, and what's weird is like, even now that we're vaccinated, these little choices about whether or not to um, go to a restaurant or go to go be inside somebody else's house. Right. Or allow somebody to come into our house. Each of those choices is not only fraught with, is this safe for all parties involved? But it's also fraught with this question of how will others judge me for doing this? And I think that's, that's been a looming, you know, presence in all of our lives too, is not only how do I make the safest choice, but also like, even if I feel safe about this, you know, is this, uh, 
is this morally okay? Will the, you know, is this something that my neighbors or my friends or my community will, you know, will, will be okay with? And I think that is also been, I don't know, kind of an unexpected element of this as well. Yeah. And I think about, you know, that exact thing. And I think about too, that most people aren't vaccinated still. So the idea of, yeah, you know, I'm vaccinated. If I get it, I, in theory, won't have the uh, life-threatening effects of it, knock on everything, but I can still get other people sick. And that the idea of that is frightening to me, and I could, I would never do that. So I also think about prospectively putting other people in harm's way. Right. And that's a real consideration that I feel like some people going back to like life per usual, maybe they're not giving that consideration, or, or maybe they are, and I'm just being a dick about it, but it is a, a real fear for me. Sure. As well, it should be. But, you know, that's the thing is that uh, that's never going to go. That part of it will never go away because we will net because the vaccines will never be 100 percent effective. We will never be at 100 percent vaccinated and we will yeah. all and this thing won't ever be 100 percent eradicated. So the, the, it becomes this, you know, we have this big question now in front of us, which is, you know, given that we could all continue to pass this thing if we don't you know if we go back out into the world what's the percentage you know what i mean that we need yeah. before we go back out into the world because it's never going to be 100 percent. and i think that's a tough one right especially because of how we started this conversation talking about like people who are unwilling to make simple sacrifices and how that's made this all much harder that also that dynamic of like people who have been absolute babies and assholes about having to make you know these sacrifices for the greater good that conflict has now made it where we will now conflate, you know what I mean? Like the, the, now it's like, you know, it all gets kind of lumped into the same category where it's like, uh, you know, um, somebody who like, you know, films themselves going into Target without a mask to like get everybody riled up and like somebody who whatever sends their kids back to school. You know what I mean? Are all <laughs> the same version of an asshole who yeah. can't make these sacrifices. And I think that's part of the problem is that we've... Um, we, we, we've put ourselves into this, uh, I don't know the right, if black and white is the right way to describe it, but you know what I mean? There's just, we've, we, it's taken on almost like a, there's such zealotry. It almost feels like a religious, you know, debate now at this point where I saw these videos the other day on Twitter of that protest in, I think it was in Santa Monica. It was in somewhere in Southern California where, uh, people were protesting at a school because the school opened up and they were telling the kids to um, take, it was like an anti-mask, you know, thing where they were telling the kids don't, you know, don't wear masks to school. And it was just so, to me, it was like absolutely insane. Like, I don't get why if, you, okay, it's one thing if you don't want to wear a mask, but like, why would you make other people who are saying they do want to wear a mask not wear one? Why would you, why does that matter to you if you're an anti-mask person? Like, you know, I get the flips, the inverse, I understand. Like, if you want people to wear masks because of a public health concern, then I could understand. But to tell people to take their mask off seems like, well, you just want everybody to do this so you'll feel better about taking it off, right? But at the end of the day, this whole thing feels like for those people... It's almost like a principled fight for them. It's almost a moral fight that they're taking it on the way that somebody would approach like a question of like religion, right? Like that yeah. your individual, your individual choice isn't good enough. Like you have, I need you to make this choice because it's what I believe and I want you to believe it too. It's like has that kind of feeling of, um, you know, proselytization. And the other side does too. The pro, the difference is that I, I feel more empathy for the other side because uh because they're coming you know they're right they're they're coming at it from a perspective of this is what's good for 
public health. And, uh, but yeah, but the problem is the, because the other side is so irrational, then we conflate this to like a both sides this type argument, right? As if both sides have sort of equal standing and we just have to figure out how to, you know. Yeah. Like it's a relevant binary, you know, binary of. Right. Where, you know, I, it, that does blow my mind too, just the idea that um, not only are, would somebody be anti-mask, but they're imploring you to be that way too so they don't feel bad. Right. Or maybe that's giving them too much credit about feeling bad because arguably maybe they don't feel anything for fuck's sake. But they're just like, you have to be on my side because I'm the right one. And I, I can't even wrap my head around that mentality and that thought process. Well, I think there are there's a considerable number of people who are just absolute kooks who think that like this is all a government plot you know, the, the pandemic people. And I think, yeah. you know, if you want to give them any credit at all, they probably believe that they're just out here, you know, exposing people to the truth. And, you know, if only you knew what I knew, you wouldn't wear that mask, that kind of thing. You know, it's yeah. just like, so it's, you know, it, I think that like, from the, it's kind of like, from that point of view, I can understand why they're doing it. But, you know, the problem is that they start off on such a absolutely absurd premise. They've already bought into something that's so ridiculous. You know, I was thinking about that, too, about in the earlier stages, again, of the pandemic of people that refuse to wear masks and trying to think of their perspective. And I could see where they wouldn't wear wear a mask because, you know, in all of this, the loss of control or like the illusion of control was more evident than ever. And people were trying to grasp onto some semblance of control. And I guess in their minds, hey, not wearing a mask, that's me establishing control over my life and all of this. That I can see. But going beyond that to the point where you brought up of that video... I mean, that, it's beyond the pale. Like, I can't fathom that. I'm trying to, like, consciously be more, like, empathetic toward everyone. Not that I wasn't before, but being it more at the forefront of my mind. And even still, man, there are limits. <laughs> there really are. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, you know, one of the, within my own family, right? Like, it's been, um, this whole past year or however long it's been has been a real journey, too. Because, you know, my wife, she, um... She works in the city in an office, and she had to go back to work kind of, er- I think, relatively early to a lot of other people, even people, even other people in her own office. And um, and I, in the early days of the pandemic, had been really, you know, scared and was somebody who really, you know, I, I wanted to keep the, you know, we didn't get haircuts. You know, we were trying to cut our own hair for six months. You know, we were like, yeah. you know, we just didn't leave the house. And I was really nervous about the whole thing. And then once she was told she had to start going back into the office a couple days a week, I got really pissed off, you know, that they were asking her to do that, that she was willing to do it, you know, and what, what, you know, how is this going to like, uh, expose the rest of us? And I remember feeling like really mad about all that. But then, you know, the experience of her going back to work, commuting in and out of the city, being around other human beings, it, over time, it gave her this completely different perspective on everything than I had. And we fought a lot. And it was because I just never left the house. And yeah. you know what I mean? And I was just sort of living in this, like, I was like living in my basement, going nuts, like feeling anxiety all day, every day. And she was out there in the city with the rest of the world trying to, like, figure out how to navigate life in the pandemic and be as safe as possible with other people who were forced to do the same thing, you know, who didn't have a choice because their employers were making them do it. And as angry as they all may have been about it, they were all sort of in it together. And I just felt like over time, it was good for me to like, 
kind of meet her in the middle, you know what I mean? And adopt yeah. some of her perspective. Because if, if not for her and her experience doing that, I would still be in the basement, you know, with long hair, freaking out, like, you know what I mean? Not letting my yeah. kids go to school. But I was able to sort of ease myself back into the world because she was forced to do it first. And then, you know, we were able to realize like, hey, you know, maybe not everything we're going to do is going to be 100% perfect. But we're, you know, if all of us with good intentions come together and try to figure out how to do this, we can piece by piece start to put this back together now that we're getting vaccinated. And I don't know, it really just changed my, it changed me and my outlook on a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't get it, you know, and I'm glad that I got vaccinated. I'm glad I still don't have it. And, um, you know, I think we were lucky. And, uh, but I'm also glad that like, and I'm glad she hasn't gotten it too, but also I'm glad that we're, uh, you know, we're able to figure this out and, uh, like I said, try to do it the smartest way possible. So we still may be doing some things that we shouldn't be, you know, but it's all, it's not because of it's, I, I, I would hope that it's not for, because of like bad intentions or lack of trying or, you know, or lack of like concern for others. No, I, that's what I, I'm thinking about too, about that exact thing of, that once whatever the first thing I do that is some form of what what it was before, that once I do that and in theory everything is okay, that it's going to be a relief of like, okay, like that first thing is going to be gigantic for me. And then I'm like, okay, well, I can do that. Now what? And then figuring out some form of, I guess, a compromise of sorts because it, it just doesn't, not everything's going to be the same, at least not in the near future. Of what it was before all this. So it's like, where is that compromise? Where is it to where I'm being safe for myself, but also because of the potential ramifications for others? I think if you can practice that mindfulness, I think, and again, do it with the best intentions, then at a certain point, that's all we can do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, another sort of a weird example of that is that um, I had been running, you know, I run, Mm -hmm. and uh, for most of the last year, you know, I would run with my mask on. And it was just so hard to do. Uh, you know, I would take it off if there was nobody around. But if I'd see a, if there were other people around, I would definitely run with the mask on. It was just was such a challenge that, like, I started finding places to run where there would be, where I would hope there'd be no people, you know, because I didn't want to wear it. Yeah. And, you know, and now we're being told that as long as we are six feet away, that the, we don't need the mask. And so, you know, as long as I can keep that six feet foot gap, I guess I could probably not wear the mask, but I always still have it with me whenever I go running. But I've noticed that fewer and fewer people out. And look, I live in New York, right? And I know in Arkansas, there hasn't been a ton of masking in public or, you know, that it's been, it's been a mixed bag, you know, at least talking to my friends and family back in Arkansas. But in New York, especially where I live, you know, people are very, uh, you know, people are pretty good about yeah about all this and so i would go running and everybody would have masks on and but i've noticed them disappearing now when i go for a run among other runners that people are not wearing you know that they're coming off and i I don't know if that's because the cdc telling us we can or if it's just a general like people are getting vaccinated and they're feeling like they can take them off but you know i don't know that's just one observation i've made recently and again i'm not out in public a lot so there that uh, some version of that's probably also happening in you know in public you know yeah, I mean, to your point about Arkansas, it's definitely been, at best, a crapshoot. I mean, I've driven around, too, and this was in the, in the throes of it, when the pandemic was full on, or I guess one of the many waves at this point. But I drove around, and it, in certain parts, you would never know, based on people walking around in public, that there was a pandemic. Sure. And it was yeah. mind-blowing to me. I mean, 
not necessarily the most surprising thing I've ever encountered, but still just to process that and knowing what's going on and then seeing life as some form of normal, uh, man, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot to process. It's been like that with conversations with my mom over the past year, you know, where like, and that's been the kind of the running joke is like, oh, well, you know, you're lucky there's no pandemic happening in Arkansas, you know, because that's, that's kind of how everybody's acting, you know, but I can remember early on in this thing, my mom and people in my family would, uh, you know, they were just doing things like normal. And whenever I would question it, they'd say, you know, like my mom would like, you know, whatever she'd ride around in a car or she would, you know, um, go to somebody's house and she'd say, well, I knew everybody that was there, right? As if that made any difference, right? There was this really this sense of like, well, what this means is you shouldn't be around people you don't know. Like, and that just seemed like such selective, you know what I mean? Like there was such a like, like, but that was kind of prevalent. Like my mom's not the only person who said that to me. I feel like a lot of people, you know, or not a lot, but you know, a number of people in my family were saying some version of that about, I don't go anywhere with people I don't know. But, or I just stick around people I know, but they're still like riding around with cars with people that they don't live with, you know what I mean? Or whatever. And yeah, not yeah, wearing masks. Only strangers are unsafe. Yeah. Right. If I know you and I know <laughs> where you've been, you know, and like, you know, and I had like my sister early on was like, you know, she's sending her kid to a daycare and then she was taking my kid, her kid to my mom's. And it was like, well, all you, you know, you guys are all like super exposed here in this situation. It's like, well, no, no, we all, you know, we know everybody that we've been. So. Yeah, they were giving taking some comfort in that. I think it's a miracle that, you know, nobody in my family back in Arkansas got COVID. Or some people did. A lot of the younger people and like younger cousins of mine did get COVID because I also get the feeling, and I don't think this is unique to Arkansas, that like people under the age of, uh, you know, 25 in America, definitely there was not, a lot of them did not act like there was a pandemic at all, right? Like yeah. teenagers and college students, you know, they they've been being teenagers and college students, right? <laughs> well, and also it's a, that flawed thought process considering what this, what COVID can do to people was like, well, I'm young and healthy. Right. And it's like, cool, but man, that thing does not discriminate. It doesn't matter. I mean, you even have, you know, in the NBA, Jason Tatum still having to use an inhaler before games. And this is a person in peak physical condition as a professional athlete. So, I mean, it's just, you know, everything can range from being asymptomatic to phraseology that I've never heard in combination of, like, bruising on the heart and lungs, Mm -hmm. which is unfathomable to me. Like, my brain can't even process that. Yeah, and I just, even here in New York where I live, like, I've heard stories from friends about, you know, teenagers in town throwing parties, house having house parties and stuff. Like, you know, they've allowed themselves because they don't feel like it could hurt them to to violate all the rules, you know, and then they've created their own little outbreaks. But, you know, it's also funny how like even I shouldn't say funny, but it's also strange that in when Arkansas really spiked and was one of the, you know, was really spiking in New York, you know, kind of had it under control there. In conversations with my mother, there were still there was still this sense of, well, you know, it's different down here. We don't have it as bad as you do up there. And I remember saying to her, like, it's worse there than it is here. Don't you get that? Like, (laughs) you know, like all those images people saw on TV early in the pandemic of like, you know, the like um, makeshift hospitals in in the middle of Manhattan and stuff. And, you know, that I think imprinted on people's brains that like New York was somehow, you know, this, that we were experiencing something different than they were. But, you know, it really quickly became just as bad or worse in so many places in America, but it was a little bit out of sight, out of mind for people too. 
Absolutely. I mean, the only thing in all this that, well, I mean, maybe not the only thing, but one of the things that Arkansas had going for it with regard to this pandemic is the relative lack of population density. I mean, it's not to say that per capita, it was not the worst in America, which I think it maybe was at one point, you know, right. relative to the population. And so it's almost like that flawed thought process of, well, the numbers in Arkansas aren't as high as they are in New York. And it's like, yeah, no shit. Of course they're not. Like, think about millions and millions and millions of people in a highly concentrated city like just New York City relative to Arkansas. Yeah, it's not going to be, but it can still be just as bad. Right. Right. In terms of percentage of the population, for sure. Yeah. And the effect can be worse because of the absence of access to hospitals, which I think hit places like Arkansas much more intensely. I think what people found was that it's a bad deal when like, you know, you you live in a rural state where there maybe is only a small number of hospitals that are prepared to deal with these types of things. And a number of them may be hours away from where you live. And uh, I think that hit places like Arkansas pretty hard. Absolutely. Yeah. And the lack of resources relative to what you would expect from, from an Arkansas. It all comes into play. I mean, yeah, again, this thing, this thing does not discriminate. There is no discernment. It just hits you. And if you don't, if you don't have, you know, that, that personal responsibility that comes with not getting sick, but especially not getting other people sick, I mean, this stuff's going to spread. I mean, to your point about your mom and, well, they're not strangers. I know these people. It's like, cool. You may know what, what those people are doing, but you don't know what the people they've encountered were doing. And it's, and all it takes is one little encounter and then it becomes a, you know, a mini super spreader event and it can do that very easily. Yeah. I did want to ask you about your book, by the way, The Vapors, (laughs) which I I don't know how to transition. Obviously, it's like, oh, it's like about that. So it's like, ah, screw it. Let's just do it. But first of all, like like I said before we started recording, I absolutely love it. It's so good. Thank you. And I learned so much about a place that is is literally an hour from me, which was, you know, it's it's funny, like you... So anywhere else, if you're not, even if you don't seek out the information through like this, this relative osmosis, you just learn certain things about a place. Hot Springs is certainly a lot of eventful things have happened in the history of Hot Springs. But I just, there's so many things I didn't realize and all these big players that were involved. But what I wanted to ask you about the book was that, well, the book itself is a lot of things. It's like eminently readable and compelling and very novelistic. And it's well balanced between the big players in in the Hot Springs gambling scene, but also your own familiar history. But it's also impressively researched. And I want to ask you, how long of a process was that? And were you, was it like research and then write or write and research at the same time? Well, it was from the day that I sold the proposal to the day that the book came out was about five years. I didn't expect that it would take that long, but it did. Um, I kind of thought it would take me like a year and a half. The research... The way I tried to do it was to, you know, front load all the research and then do all the writing at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't really necessarily work out that way. Uh, I did spend a year in Arkansas. I, we, my family, we moved, we left Brooklyn and we moved down there for a year and lived in Hot Springs for a year to sort of do a lot of the research. And And I ended up writing while I was there. Uh, I think when we left, by the time we left Hot Springs in that year, I had a, I had a first draft written. So once I was down there, living there, I was really rocking and rolling um, with what I was finding and started writing and was able to have a 
you know, whatever, a serviceable first draft done when we left. Now, I wasn't close. The writing wasn't close to being done yet. And, you know, I had to work with editors to, like, get it into shape over the next couple of years. But also, more research kept coming in. I mean, one story I've told several times is that I relied a lot on FBI files and Department of Justice files that I FOIA'd. And the yeah. FOIA process is very slow. And I negotiated with someone in the, you know, their records department there over the scope of my request because I had a huge request of thousands and thousands of pages. And I talked to the FBI, explained to them what my project was so that they had kind of an understanding of what I was looking for so that they could eliminate things that might be not useful to me uh, from my request. And and they would sort of send me chunks of pages here and there rather than me wait for, till the 12th and never for, you know, thousands of pages. And the, what was sort of terrifying about that is that I'd be writing and then another chunk of files would come in and then I'd have to go back and change something or rewrite something based on that. And that happened all the way up till the 11th hour. I mean, right when I was like reviewing kind of page proofs, right, where I had like um, the publisher sent me, you know, the pages, the actual, they had laid them out and everything like that. It was just like, you know, this is what, it was sort of one of the final steps in the process. I got my hands on this file that was just incredible. And uh, I said, you know, I hate to do this, but you know, it was kind of like stop the presses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I have to go back and, and get some of this in the book. And it delayed the process even more and they were annoyed about it. But I, you know, showed them what I got and they were also excited about it. So and I'm sure those files will keep coming. I got, you know, I've been getting more files since the book has come out. None of them have been as jaw dropping as that one that came in at just the right time. But I'm sure that they will. You know, I'm sure I'll be getting files you know, years from now, and they'll be like, I'm, one day I would just know a file is going to show up in my inbox or in my mailbox. It's going to be like, oh, here's where something in the book is completely wrong. <laughs> and here's yeah. the file that proves it. But I will have seen it too late. So that part kind of sucked. But yeah, I, I think that I thought I would do the research and then write. And it turned out that I really ended up having to do a lot of it, you know, at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I'm curious about that, about when you're writing something steeped in actual history about how you know when to cut it off i guess to be like well this is the yeah. best i can do in this moment or, or capture as much as i can and i think about that too in relation to like documentaries about look at a certain point you have to put this thing out <laughs> and yeah, yeah. it's gotta, gotta be tough to ride that line you know no it's absolutely hard and look i mean it's because with history yeah you can kind of go forever particularly this type of narrative documentary style history where you have to remember that like the way that I was trying to tell the story was by telling the story of these people's lives. And, you know, you can just, I would just follow all these different paths and find all this, you know, one thing would lead to another interesting story, which would lead to another interesting story. But also researching history is a form of procrastination, right? Like researching <laughs> is not writing. So yeah. it's fun to research and read and it's more fun than actual writing. And so, yeah, it's, it was really a difficult thing to call it. And luckily, that's where editors help, right? I mean, it was helpful to have an editor who would say to me, this doesn't matter, David, right? Like he'd say, "This, like, <laughs> yeah. the things that you're obsessed with at this point don't matter. They only matter to you. And they're not going to matter. They're not going to make the book better. The reader's not going to care. I mean, we cut a lot of stuff out of this book that I was very proud of, little, little cool stories that I found that I desperately wanted in the book. But he'd say, look, this is getting us too far afield. You know, one of the sort of directions I got from the editor was like, you have three characters, right? We've even structured the book around these three characters. So if the tangent you're walking down takes you too far from one of the, those three characters, then you got to cut it, 
You know what I mean? Or you got to walk it back to them. You got to get it back to them somehow. And that was a good note for me to get because I think I had spent so many years just like living in this place and time and just like consuming so much of this information that everything was interesting to me. But I am not the reader of this book. I'm the writer and the editor is a reader. And it was good for me to hear from somebody who was objective, who had not been, you know what I mean? This, In some ways, this is a parallel to this conversation we were having before about the pandemic and me and my wife and me being in the basement and her being out in the world and her, me hearing from her like saying like, hey, you know what? Like, People are actually going outside, you know, like you should try yeah. it. I had to have an editor say to me like, hey, man, you know, take the take the like, you know, the red string and the, the cork board down from the wall because <laughs> the things that you're getting obsessed with are not interesting to the general public and, you know, get back on track with the story you're trying to tell. And that really helped. That helped me. But I, I think to your question about how do you how do you call it? I think in my case, I needed someone else to call it for me. Fair. I think about that too, about how I can have a thought and I like really vet it in my head. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is a good thought. And then I say it to somebody and in one sentence, they completely, completely dismantle it. And I'm like, shit, that makes so much sense. So the value of another person's perspective, I mean, it can't be underestimated. Yeah. And especially with like writing, I mean, editors, you know, they're kind of unsung heroes in terms of writing because they don't get their name on the front of the book, you know, but they play such an important role. And that's not just with books. I mean, it's with magazine writing or anything, you know, like, yeah. I feel like editors have always helped me turn my work into something that's better. You know, it's, so in that sense, writing professionally can be a real collaboration. And uh, so I was lucky that I had good editors to work with in this book. Otherwise, I might have if I had self published this book, it might have been really kooky. Some of the stuff that I <laughs> would have chosen yeah. to like, to highlight, or some of the sort of avenues I went down. And honestly, I do think that like, I can tell you know, as a reader, when a book has not had an editor on this particular score, right? I, I mean, especially with researching this book in particular, where I had to rely on a lot of like kind of self-published texts or like, you know, stuff that, um, you know, was written by amateur historians, whatever, where, you know, the story would kind of just meander and follow, it would just follow every thread that came along. And I can understand the temptation to do that when you're doing research, and you're just sort of like transcribing the research you're doing for the reader. But that's not the same as telling a good story. And yeah. That's the thing I had to get pulled back into is to say, you're not here to show the world what all you learned during these years of researching this. You're here to tell a good story. And I get that, you know, that's one of the criticisms I get from people back in Arkansas who read the book. One thing that people say to me a lot is like, why didn't you say this? Or why didn't you include this? Or why? what about this person? You know? And it's like, well, I mean, this book is not... It doesn't say on the front of the book, like, this is a comprehensive history of Hot Springs, Arkansas. <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. book about it's it's really literally a book about three people. So, you know, I had to make choices. Uh, I couldn't, you know, but it, people people back in Hot Springs, I get that a lot from folks about, you know, well, don't you even know? Do you know about this person? It's like, yeah, I know about them. They're just I didn't write a book about them. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's very uh, impressively researched, but it's also a tough tale to tell i would imagine because there are plenty of people who at the time even and maybe even now had a literal and and figurative vested interest in these stories not being told so i'm i know that you had to rely probably more on the fbi information than like local publications because they probably weren't telling the true story yeah absolutely but i don't think one of the things i think i came to learn after finishing this book or some at some point while i was writing it i think I, it kind of dawned on me that like you know, no, no one's telling the true story. Nobody. 
I mean, the big thing with historians is, um, you know, like primary source documents, right? And so a primary source document is, you know, something that is a firsthand account of something, right? So, you know, somebody giving an account of something that happened to them is, you know, considered primary source. Somebody, you know, telling a story that they heard from someone else about something that happened to them is not. And historians will will prioritize one over the other, and for obvious reasons, right? But also, like, contemporary news reports, court records, whatever, police reports, all that kind of stuff, that's also primary source documentation. Sure. But what I found while writing this book was that like it was all of questionable veracity i mean like if i read a newspaper article and this is what you, i think you're alluding to but if i read a newspaper article i could read you know three different articles about the same event and get three different versions of what happened depending on who was writing it whether it was the arkansas democrat the arkansas gazette or the hot springs new era you know the democrat and the gazette back when those two papers existed had dueling interests they had bo- dueling political interests so they both you know they were Sometimes they would tell the same, especially with politics, right? They'd tell the same story completely different ways. But also the Hot Springs papers were kind of, you know, they were like in the tank, so to speak, for the gambling business. And they kept a lot of things hidden. And they, they were sort of, on, you know what I mean? They were playing ball with the uh, with the criminals. And so it was, but also like, you know, I would read FBI files and realize that like, well, this FBI agent is telling J. Edgar Hoover that it's a certain way. But how does he know? Because he talked to some snitch and that snitch might have lied to him. Right. Yeah. Or whatever. I mean, I had recordings, uh, you know, transcripts of audio recordings from a microphone that was hidden in Dane Harris's office at the Vapors. Well, that's pretty good stuff, you know, and that's some stuff you could take to the bank. But like, how do I know he's not lying to the people he's talking to in those <laughs> conversations? I don't, you know, so I could have him. Uh, there's a recording somewhere, you know, I have a transcript of a recording of him talking in his office about how they have to buy Senator McClellan's wife a car to keep McClellan off their back. But how do I know that's the truth? You know what I mean? How do I know he wasn't lying to that person? I don't. So at the end of the day, like, you know, historians tell a story and they say, this is what really happened. But this is why historians also debate, scholarly historians, you know, they, 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 they debate and fight and argue over what's, what's true and what's not, because none of them really know. And that's really their whole profession. Exactly. And it's like, who can best claim that they know what really <laughs> happened? We're all, and I think I said this in my author's note to the book, at the end of the day, what I told myself was, I'm going to learn as much as I can. And then I'm going to make choices about what information to tell here. And I'm going to make those choices, not always because I think of what I, you know, think is like the most provable or whatever, but just based on my own sense of what's probably true after having spent years researching this, but also, and I'll be honest here, based on what's going to make the best story too. Sure. To your point about like um, historians having to rely on the primary sources, I mean, just because they're primary sources obviously doesn't mean they're in any way reliable. But at a certain point, you have to rely on something to record our history because it's important to have that information. Yeah. That's the sort of one rule I gave myself writing the book was like, I'm not going to invent anything out of whole cloth, right? Like, yeah. there may be things in this book that aren't exactly the way things happen, but it's not because I made it up. It'll be because someone else made it up and told it to me. That was the only rule I gave myself. So like all the dialogue that you read in the book, I didn't invent any of that dialogue. Some of the dialogue came straight from, like I said, transcripts of, you know, recordings, which was in those cases, it was that's what was said. And so it's it's within quotation marks. But one liberty I gave myself was that if somebody told me a story and they were trying to recount the story for me and they were trying to recall what was said, I would use that dialogue in their recollection as the dialogue in the book, right? 
I mean, you know, there may be, you know, somebody like, uh, I don't know, there's probably some writers out there who, um, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of like Eric Larson here, who are a little bit sort of more, <laughs> uh, what's the right word, a nice word to use, who are very strict about how they write nonfiction, right? Who would yeah. say you never do that, right? You would never put anything behind, under, in quotation marks that you don't absolutely know somebody said. But, you know, whatever. I gave myself the freedom to say, hey, if I'm not going to invent dialogue in this book, but I'm not going to like, you know, but I am, I need dialogue. And if somebody sure. says to me like, oh, and then she told me this and here's what she said. And when I was interviewing people, because I knew I wanted the book to feel novelistic, you know, and when I would interview people, I'd say, well, what did he say? What did she say? You know, I would try to get them to try to re recollect conversations so that I could use those conversations in the book. Um, so... Sometimes people ask me like, wow, you have so much great dialogue in here. And it's like, well, that's how I got to it. I knew I wanted that. So I would be interviewing these old people and they'd be telling me these stories and I'd say, oh, and then what'd she say? Do you remember what she said? You know, yeah. <laughs> like so that I could get them to sort of put it together for me. I mean, that makes sense, too. But I mean, to your point, you're, like, you're not writing this bone dry history of Hot Springs and the gambling they're in. You're still telling a tale while also having to kind of reconcile with being as accurate as you can while still weaving that that tale and that's that's a tough line to to ride i would imagine well i mean i just i'm not a scholar i'm not an academic and uh so yeah i, I just had to at a certain point give myself you know give myself the a set of rules and follow them because this isn't like peer-reviewed scholarly history where the rules are kind of written in stone about how to do it. And you'll yeah. find that with narrative nonfiction, there are no rules. I mean, you really do have to give the rules, give yourself the rules, right? I mean, there are people out there like, you know, people like Ben Mesrick who write, you know, who writes like a couple books a year and he invents all of his dialogue. But he'll just, you know, he's cops to it on the first page. You know, he'll say like, I've recreated conversations in this book, you know, or I've whatever. Like, that's the thing about nonfiction is that, uh, or when you're writing a book, is that whatever you cop to in the author's note, that's what you do. Like, you get to make your own rules. So if the rule you set for yourself is, you know, I'm going to tell a story, it's going to be pretty, you know, pretty true, but, you know, I'm going to, like, create characters, or I'm going to, maybe I'll uh, imagine some, what I imagine some conversations were like, for your benefit as the reader. You know, this is obviously somebody who sells a lot of books to Hollywood, so, yeah. you know, he, he knows what's going to make his story sing. That stuff would never fly in magazine writing. I mean, I, you know, magazine writing is like fact check to help. My, the vapors might not fly. I mean, I've got a lot, you know, I've obviously have tons and tons of notes in there. But again, this thing I said about how I recollected conversations, if I was writing that piece for whatever, The New Yorker, I would have to say, you know, according to Ressi, so-and-so said this in the actual prose rather than in a footnote because you don't get to footnote your, uh, you know, you don't get to footnote your magazine pieces. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, to your point, though, like it's it's an incredibly cinematic tale, and I know that the the rights to it were were sold or at least announced in February. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just early days, but how involved in that are you? Not very. There's a uh, it, you know it was option for a TV series, and so there's a showrunner attached, and he is writing a, a pilot script, and they'll use that pilot script to try to get a network to you know take the show, and you know I've had some. I've had some conversations with him and I've shared with him, you know, he has all of my files, you know, he has all my yeah. research and he's from time to time will reach out to me and ask me questions, but I've, I'm trying to be very hands off with it. And the folks who optioned it, they're very cool 
And I think there's an opening, there's an invitation for me to be more involved if I wanted to be. But I'm trying to be cool, you know what I mean? I'm trying to be like, to give them space and to really present, you know, I think authors get a bad rap out in LA with these kinds of projects because authors can are seen by, you know, uh, screenwriters and TV writers as being overly protective of their work. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? And they really want to like, you know, kind of lord over it. And they're not ready to give it away to give it up completely to Hollywood to like reimagine. And so I'm trying really hard to like not be that, right? And to accept that whatever may come of the vapors on the screen may not look like what I imagined or be like what I, you know what I mean? Because it's it's going to be somebody else's vision of this story and that's okay. Yeah, and there are... Obviously, from a book to a to a TV show or prospective TV show, there are far different considerations that are involved in that. Oh, definitely. And I mean, you know, uh, and the other thing is when they make a movie or a TV show, they are not all the rules that I said I give myself when writing. <laughs> exactly. yeah. They don't have any. I mean, they can make everything up. Right. So the showrunner, he, he has complete freedom. He can create new characters out of whole cloth. He can create situations and scenarios, you know. The truth is just the starting point, right? So when you say based on a true story, that just means that the truth was the starting point. And from there, there was a lot of imagination that went into it. So that's another thing that I think is very freeing about thinking about The Vapors as a TV show is that uh, we won't be, uh, you know, pinned in by (laughs) the facts and what really happened. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a Ken Burns documentary. It's a TV show. And with that comes... Whatever they need to do to make it the most, you know, in theory, compelling product they can. And that's just a different, it's a completely different mindset from where you began. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, and I'm trying to accept that, like, that's a good thing, right? Like, I definitely <laughs> don't want to be the kind of author who looks at the script for this show later and says, like, well, that's not how it happened. Because, yeah. like, they know that already, right? Like, they're like, well, I know, but wouldn't it have been better if it did happen this way? And I think that's what's sort of magical and fun about television is that you can, you can turn nonfiction into essentially fiction. I mean, you look at the show Boardwalk Empire, right? I mean, the book Boardwalk Empire is a work of nonfiction. The show is just starts with that book and it just imagines this whole, all these different events and these, this, this whole world, this universe. What's funny is a lot of people watch the show Boardwalk Empire and they believe they're watching actual history. You know, they really think that some yeah. of these people are real people and these are really real events that happened. So there's also an interesting thing that happens in our culture where we, where these types of shows and movies blur blur the lines between, you know, history and 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 fiction. No, absolutely. The last thing I wanted to ask you, or, or just to talk about, was I know that before this we talked about, or, or we talked about um, dipping our toes back into whatever form of life this is now. But do you have it like a thought in your head of um, like I want to go to to this casino or, or gamble, or have you been thinking about that about where you'd want to go if you would go back? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. All the time, all the time. I mean, look, one thing one thing that I definitely miss is like, you know, I have three little kids and I spend all my time with them, right? Like I they're the only human beings I talk to a lot of times in, in person. You know, and I spend and like that's always the case when you're like a stay at home parent who works from home. But like it's been like that even more so now because they can't go anywhere, right? I can't dump them off anywhere. So like yeah. I don't even I get no break from them. So like I definitely long for the moment where I will be able to like, you know, be around other adults in social settings again, but also my wife and I, because of this, this situation, like even we're, we are never alone together. 
right? I don't think in the last year we've never been like alone together because we don't, we've not given our kids to babysitters or grandparents or anything like that, right? So one of us is always with all, with kids. So we've not been able to go out and do anything fun together, like get dinner or go on a date or anything. So I definitely long for that. I long for being around adults without kids around. But I also, uh, you know, I miss going to the movies. They used to be something that I Same. did a lot. And uh, I really miss movie theaters. Now, my family, we've always been big drive-in people and we like going to the drive-in. And so, the, you know, we used to go to the drive-in before the pandemic. So one thing that was kind of annoying about the pandemic was that it definitely made the drive-ins a lot fuller, which was annoying, but also kind of cool because it's like, well, hey, at least this means this drive-in's not going to close down. You know, like I'm glad people are rediscovering how fun this is. But still, I miss going to actual movie theaters. That used to be something that I really liked doing, especially in the city, was, you know, going for a long walk and that walk sort of terminating at some random movie theater that I just stumble across and decide to take in a show, uh, uh, you know, a screening. Like, that used to be one of my favorite things to do in the city was to wander around, get lost, and go to a movie. And now it's like you just wander around get lost and then have to go to the bathroom and then desperately panic and try to figure out how you're going to get back home in time to go to yeah. the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> if there's any one singular thing that I miss doing the most and I'd want to do the most, it's going to a movie, like in a theater. Mm-hmm. That I desperately miss. Like I went, you know, this last year, I guess maybe November, maybe October, went to my first drive-in, drive-in movie ever. And uh, it was a great experience. And it was like a thing that was like similar, but certainly not the same. But it, it still felt good to see something, to go out to some degree and to see something. Yeah, it's not the same. It's not the it's same. At all. There's, no. There are certain movies. I'll say someone with kids, it's a great way to watch movies with kids. It's pre- my preference, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. I would much rather take my kids to the drive-in than take them to the theater. Because they get restless, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? They yeah. want, they don't want to watch the movie. They want to go to sleep. It's fine. Like that's it's a great way to watch movies with children. But yeah, like I I, I definitely um, I definitely miss going to you know there are certain movies that I feel like you have to see in a theater and not at the drive-in, and I've missed that. I also miss libraries. I used to spend a lot of time in libraries. I I, I write in li- I used to, before the pandemic I would write in the library. I didn't write at home, and I needed. You know, I needed to leave the house to feel like I'm working. You know what I mean? So yeah. uh, I needed to like be in another place to like have my brain click on. That's like, okay, no fucking around. Like now you have to get to work. So I would go to the library a lot and work. Because for me, working is sometimes reading too. And like sitting around the house and reading is difficult with like, you know, critters running all over the place. So now all the libraries are closed and I really miss that too. I miss having a place, a library or a diner or coffee shop to go to and sit down and spend a few hours reading without distraction yeah at least if you're in a place if you go out in a place to work you're like well i can't stay here forever so get to work at the very least uh Mm -hmm. as opposed to well i'm at home i'm sitting on the couch and writing i could be here all day and so maybe there's just less sense (laughs) of an urgency and there's no line of demarcation between home life and work life well, also so, there's the, there's the judgmental gaze of my family, which is a writer I've battled I've <laughs> yeah. battled for years, and I've all my mantra has always been like writing is not typing, but like it can be really annoying for my children and my wife to see me like watching a movie or reading a book and not think that I'm just loafing about, and it's like hey yeah. I'm not I'm actually doing work you know like I have to watch this film for this thing I'm writing, but to them it just looks like I'm having a grand old time you know so yeah. this is a uh, it's easier for me to just be away from them so that they don't have to sit there while they're, you know, busy doing chores or whatever. 
and they see me sitting there, you know, watching some stupid movie. <laughs> no, fair. I was curious too, like what um what do you think is the best representation of gambling in film? Well, I I don't know if I have like a, you know, a, one answer for that. I sure. do but I do think that it's a good question because there's a lot of bad representations of gambling in film in my opinion. But I think there have been some movies that were pretty good that got it right. One recent movie that came out not too long ago that I really love was uh, this movie called Mississippi Grind. I was wondering if that's what you would say. It seemed very accurate in what, I guess, gambling addiction is represented. I think that's a great movie. I really, really like that movie. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I actually... One of the things I like about it is that I don't think that it... It doesn't sort of... um, dwell on this this idea of the main character being an addict um Mm. you know he's definitely he says he calls himself bad with money which is definitely true he's not very good with money but it's not clear to me that that his whole problem is that he gambles it all away because what we see in the film is that he's actually not a bad gambler you know Mm -hmm. he he actually you know he does win but he, he he makes some bad bets too but uh, there's obviously something else going on with him in addition to gambling. So I didn't get that sense in the movie that he's like that, or that the movie was concerning itself with gambling as an addiction. It was more like thinking about how the other, the Ryan Reynolds character seems on the surface to be someone who kind of has their life together and is with it. You know what I mean? And okay, is like, yeah. has all the answers and like, you know, if I just follow this person, they can help lead me out of, you know, I can be more like them and it can lead me away from whatever my problems are only to find out that this person has all the same problems. They just aren't projecting them in the same way that you are, you know? And I thought that was an interesting thing. But one of the things about the movie that's that I learned was that the filmmakers got the idea to make the movie because while they were shooting some other film in some small town, and I don't remember where, Indiana or something, the crew and the cast, everybody hung out at the casino because the casino was the only place in town to hang out. And they all started hanging around the casino while they were shooting the film and they got obsessed with like the kind of local characters that they would meet that hung out in that casino. And that was where the sort of germ for this idea of doing a film about, about these types of gamblers. And I love it. And this is sort of, you know, to me, these, this is the type of story that I like is one that's about gamblers who aren't like whatever, like, you know, who aren't like making millions of dollars. Like most gambling movies, it's either going to be about somebody who's making an absolute fortune or someone who cheats or someone who is such an addict that their life is being completely destroyed. And I feel like what that film did better than a lot of movies is it just sort of showed the way that like, you know, gambling can be a part of like a normal person's like world or life. Uh, the, the, another movie that's on, that's very similar to Mississippi Grind that I think Mississippi Grind really borrowed a lot from is California Split. And, yeah. um, I almost think it, it almost feels like a remake of California Split in a lot of ways. I mean, there's so many, even like the basketball scene in Mississippi Grind feels like it's just completely ripped off from uh, California Split. But California Split is a Robert Altman film, and it's, uh, uh, I think it's from the 70s, and it really captures the world of like 1970s California card rooms, or at least I imagine it captures it accurately. I never walked in any of those California card rooms until the 1990s, but... Uh, you know, but even then, I still feel like it was a pretty, it was pretty spot on in terms of like that world and that, you know, that community of gamblers that hang around the card rooms and racetracks. So I like that movie a lot too. I like the movie Rounders. You know, I, I used to play in New York City in the clubs that are depicted in Rounders. And I know for a fact that Brian Koppelman did spend time in those clubs. And so he 
pretty, you know, he gets a, it's a pretty accurate picture of what that scene, the underground poker scene in the 90s in New York City was like. And so I think that movie's a really good one, too. But yeah, I think there's also a lot of bad bad gambling movies out there as well. I did an episode of um, The Big Picture on The Ringer where we talked about gambling movies and our top fives. And one movie that I put in my top five that everybody was really shocked by was Guys and Dolls. But, you know, Guys and Dolls is not necessarily an accurate depiction of gambling. But mm-hmm. I do think it's such an interesting cultural artifact that there was a period in American history, his cultural history where a movie that is a complete and utter celebration of gambling as something that is fun and, you know, that that could become such a major piece of popular culture. I mean, this is the only movie that Sinatra and Brando ever did together. This was a, you know, a huge hit Broadway show and a major motion picture. And it's just, you know, the sort of the central driving conflict in the film is like, where are we going to have the craps game tonight? And I just think that's a different moment in America because today we can't make movies about gambling unless they're sad and depressing and about people, you know, being like fucked up by gambling. So it just it's just a snapshot of a different time in our culture where gambling wasn't really seen that way. Well, that makes sense, too, because it feels like with certain exceptions that the tale of a gambler feels like such a the rise and fall narrative. But now I got to I got to rewatch Guys and Dolls because I don't know that I've seen that in a long time. <laughs> you know what? I didn't think that talking to you about this, about all of this would result in me watching Guys and Dolls. But then again, you just never know how life's going to go, I suppose. <laughs> well, you know, it's it was a, um, you know, I, I'm a fan of Damon Runyon's writing, who, who I think is a very interesting writer stylistically. And he's an interesting writer kind of for what he, you know, what he documented. And that show, a lot of people think that show was written by Damon Runyon. It wasn't, but it was written to feel like the style of Damon Runyon. It was very, mm. they call it Runyon-esque, you know, and, uh, and I just think, you know, it's, it's fun and it's, um, and it's, it's almost like you could, you could watch Guys and Dolls and not feel like you watched something that was all about gambling because they presented in such a different way, you know, and I just, again, in the 1950s, gambling was such a major part of life in America it was a vice that did not carry the same taboo with it back then than it does today. I feel like America really went through something in the 60s and 70s and 80s where they really tried to like purge themselves of gambling and uh, and, and created a real taboo or, or, you know, stigma rather around that particular vice that we still see today. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I know you talk about this in the epilogue of the book, but like even Arkansas is just now kind of coming out of it, I guess. It's still like um, technically, yes, coming out of it and, we're, and, and the seeds have been planted, but it's still feels a little bit like it's tentative or like a TBD situation <laughs> to yeah. some degree. But I guess we're we're getting there. It's tentative with the with the like policymakers, not with the people. It's the same way in Arkansas Absolutely. with with marijuana yeah. or minimum wage. You know, if you ask the people, they're going to say, "Yeah, legalize pot," and then the legislators are like, "I don't know." But yeah, I mean, I, I it's interesting how Asa Hutchinson had opposed the the gambling measure, but now that down at Hot Springs they're building this hundred million dollar casino resort, and Asa Hutchinson is saying, "Wow, this is actually the biggest tourism project in the state's history." You know what I mean? He's definitely yeah. come around on it. So, like, you know, people are going to come around on it by hook or by crook. The problem is some people are coming around on it way too late, and uh, they're going to hope that gambling can save them in a way that a gambling won't be able to save them. It's like with, with marijuana, too. I'm like, well, once everybody sees that there's money to be made, that's going to open the floodgates. But then it's a chicken or the egg situation. You've got to have that first step to be able to do so, and then it'll get going. And the same thing with gambling in Arkansas. Well, you just have to be... 
it's going to require a state to be so broke and desperate that they need they need new sources of revenue. And the yeah. states, you know, the state I live in right now in New York, we don't have gambling because in New York, we when we need money, we just raise taxes. But in Arkansas, they'll they won't raise taxes. So where yeah. do they, you know, for revenue, they're going to have to do things like legalize marijuana, legalize gambling, and then tax those businesses, you know, and this is it's just an old story. You know what I mean? It's the same way with booze. You know what I mean? Like it's the same yeah. way with like cigarettes, like it's just, you know, so they're going to get desperate and then they're going to say, okay, well, maybe we can let the people do this, you know, because we need the money. <laughs> yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention. And in this case, the invention is a thing that's always been around. Right, it always been around. And that's well, that and that's an important point because I think what opponents to gambling often say is like, "Oh, well, now all we've done is created a, a tax that only poor people pay." Which I th- one I think I object to because not only poor people gamble, but two, it's like everybody that's going into a casino gambling, we're already gambling. You know what I mean? People that are smoking <laughs> yeah. weed, who are buying weed at a dispensary, we're already smoking weed. Like the idea that like it's created new ones. I think is probably not as true as people want to think it is. Like, I just think that folks who have no experience with gambling in their life and their family and their community don't realize that it's already happening. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, yeah. that's the thing I run up against a lot with people who moralize to me about gambling is that like the reason you don't see gambling the same way that you, you don't look at gambling the same way you look at ap- alcohol is you don't know anybody that gambles recreationally for fun, but yeah. you know, but you know plenty of people that drink recreationally. For, so, for you, gambling is something that could only lead to a life being ruined, to addiction and social problems and ruin. But alcohol is something that sometimes leads to that, but often is something that people can have in their life in moderation and actually is fine. You know, we can trust people to do it. And that's the difference, right? And I live, I grew up around people that gambled and I've grown up around my whole life. So to me, I think about it very similar to the way that people might think about having a glass of wine, a bed at the racetrack, you know what I mean? To me, it's all whatever, you know, like, I don't think because somebody makes bets on horse races on the weekend that that means that their, you know, next stop is, you know, panhandling or robbing, stealing so that they can get another bet down the same way they want a gateway bet. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like that's way a lot of people make that assumption. And I think it's as ridiculous as thinking that if someone orders a glass of wine with dinner, that they're somehow secretly an alcoholic, you know, (laughs) I mean, so this is one of the problems that I feel like gambling is up against, too, is that that so many people have been siloed away from it. And I think this is also true about recreational drugs, like that if somebody has been able to live their life completely, you know, without any exposure to it or interaction with it, they can convince themselves that the people who are using drugs are all, you know, on a path to becoming junkies. So, you know, so hopefully having, you know, hopefully over time people will realize, I mean, I don't think that gam- legalizing gambling in Arkansas is going to help Arkansas with their you know, budget issues. And I don't think that these casinos are ultimately good public policy, you know, but I also don't see any reason to oppose legalized gambling on moral grounds either. So I'm like fine with it. Like, of course we should, we should have lotteries and it should be legal to make bets in America. You know, do I think that like legalizing gambling is the way for states like Mississippi and Arkansas and West Virginia to like fill the gaps in their budget? Hell no, I don't. They should be (laughs) raising taxes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Something can be said for normalizing it, because I think at a certain point, it should be an option and people can choose what they want to do with that, whether they participate or not. 
And, and you know, that's an important thing, I think. It's also an important way to, ca- for people who can't handle it, that's a better way to catch them. And that's true sure. across the board with any of this kind of stuff, whether it's like, you know, whether it's sex work or, or um, you know, recreational drugs, whatever it is, like, you know, if it's true that these things can lead to real problems, well, the best way to know that you can catch those problems and treat them and deal with them is to have this kind of stuff happening out in the open instead of having it be something that occurs underground. And that's the way we've dealt with things in our society for way too long. Absolutely. I cannot agree more. And and obviously the best one of the best way, if not the best ways to ensure somebody does something is to tell them they can't do that. So, you know, <laughs> I know I have kids. I, I know that's for a fact. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. This was great. I enjoyed it so much. What all do you want to point people toward, if anything? Well, I mean, if folks are interested in reading my book and they haven't yet, they should check that out. It's called The Vapors, like you said in the introduction. And uh, my podcast is on, you can catch it anywhere you get podcasts. It's called Gamblers. And uh, I'm on Twitter at DaveHill77. And I'm on the web at DavidHillOnline.com. So those are probably good places that people can find me and get in touch with me. Yes, I cannot recommend that book enough. It is so good. And the podcast is great, too. So, um, yeah, thank you again for this. This was great. Thanks for asking me, Brandon. I had a good time. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Please stay safe. Please uh, wear a mask, I guess. I don't know what to do anymore. Wear a mask. That would be great. Please. And, uh, you know, lead with empathy. And it's okay to not be okay. All right. Thank you for listening. Bye.